Good morning. Well, it's a joy for me to be here. Um, as Lance has just kind of outlined, uh, he was one of my earliest friends in coming to the States in 1994 to start at the Master's Seminary. We ended up living in a little apartment on the same street with Lance and Beth and the family, uh, Phil Johnson and his wife and uh, June and our family, and uh, God meant that to be. And uh, across the years, we've just enjoyed each other's friendship. Uh, he has preached for me, I've preached for him, and uh, visited his ministry in Little Rock, and now uh, here at Bethany. It's a joy. Excited to see all that God is doing. You are a church on a hill, literally, and I trust also spiritually that God will use the pulpit, uh, the life of this congregation, and uh, to impact uh, Thousand Oaks and, and this area uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you here this morning. I'm, I'm excited, always excited about speaking to men. We have a very vibrant men's ministry at our own church. I speak once a month to our men. We have upwards of 300 guys. Started out with about 50. It's grown over the 10 years, and I pray that for you. I trust you'll get excited as men for being together. Uh, be, be that band of men described in the Old Testament whose hearts the Lord had touched. I think churches need strong men's ministries, um, and I pray that for you. And I'm excited to be here and uh, share from, from, from God's Word. Um, I've, I've told this story often. When I was at the church in Toledo, Ohio, and one of the deacons came to me and said, Pastor, I saw a sign in the gun shop downtown Toledo you might enjoy. I said, well, what was it? He said, well, there smack dab in the middle of the shop window was sign that said, treat your gun like you treat an Irishman. Always assume it's loaded. And, 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 and um, it's pretty good. And, and I, am, I am locked and loaded. I'm excited to be here. I think God's got a message from you from James 1. And uh, I, I trust that today we'll have a great time in God's presence. Just a little fun aside, one of our guys recently sent me this. I don't know if you've come across this article. It's called The Man's Theosaurus. And, and, you know, this, this kind of helps. The whole area of communication and marriage and, and life's very important. So here's one that will maybe help you. So man's theosaurus goes something like this. When a man says, I would take too, it would take too long to explain what he really means, I have no idea how it works. When a man says, take a break, honey, you're working too hard, what he really means is I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner. Um, <laughs> When a man says, that's interesting, dear, he means, are you still talking? Uh, when, a man, when, a man, when a man says it's a guy thing, what he means is this, there's no rational thought pattern connected with this, and you have no chance at all of making it logical. When a man says, can I help you with dinner, what he really means is, isn't it ready yet? Uh, when a man says, you look terrific, dear, what he really means is, oh, please don't try on another outfit. We're late and I'm starving. Um, couple more here. When a man says, I'm not lost. I know exactly where I am. What he really means is no one will ever see us alive again. When a man says, I don't remember saying that. What he really means is anything I may have said six months ago is inadmissible in an argument. In fact, all past comments become null and void after seven days. And when a man says that's not what I meant, what he means is if something I said could be interpreted two ways, and one of the ways makes you sad and angry, I meant the other one. So that's good. Very helpful. Um, 
I'll take a couple of minutes to tell my story because I'm probably not familiar to you. As Lance said, grew up in the city of Belfast, uh, famous for Irish linen, famous for um, Van Morrison, James Galway, and uh, the, the, the unsinkable ship that sunk. Uh, which was the which was the Titanic? Uh, most people think the Titanic was built in England. It was built actually left out of Liverpool and Southampton, but it was built in Belfast. And when it went down, a, a shroud of darkness covered the city. Um, uh, although when I was back in Belfast a couple of years ago, I loved the T-shirt. I wish I'd have bought one. I didn't. Uh, but there was a T-shirt being sold that it, it said Titanic. Built by Irishmen, sunk by an Englishman. So uh, that's 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 just that's just a fact. Uh, you know, we built it. It was a good ship. They racked it. Um, but but so I grew up grew up there. Uh, grew up in a Christian home. And and when you're not saved, when you're not a Christian, when you don't have the life of Christ in you through the work of the Holy Spirit, the last thing you want as a teenager is to be born into a Christian home. And, and, and to live under the, the restrictions of God's law and, and, and going to church. And that's kind of was my life. I, I loved my mom and dad. They're the best. They're still alive today. My dad's one of my heroes, blue-collar factory worker, uh, faithful to my mother, worked hard, taking care of us, loves his country. He's been involved in politics for the last 20 years. Even though he left school at 14, in the last seven or eight years of his life, he's become the Lord Mayor of a, a major borough in Belfast. I'm very proud of him. He's about to retire in a week or two. I might even surprise him and fly over for his retirement party without him knowing. But I, I, don't get me wrong. I love my mom and dad. But, but you know, being brought to church every week, sitting under the gospel, hearing, uh, you know, messages uh, about heaven and hell and, and, and Jesus' death on my behalf and the love of God and the danger of sin, uh, you know, and, and yet on the other side of that, uh, you know, I'm getting drawn into the politics of Northern Ireland. I, for a period of my life, I was involved in soccer hooliganism. My mum and dad didn't know much about that in the, in the, in the eighties. That was going all, all across Britain and, and uh, Europe and in Northern Ireland that had a tinge of sectarianism. Even the soccer teams tended to be divided, at least on the supporting level between Protestant and Catholic teams. And it brought attention to that, got involved in that, um, kind of was always around the edge of, of the conflict. Several of my friends got involved in terrorism. I've been in, I was in different homes when guns were being passed around. Uh, I was, I was involved in that around the edges, uh, was involved in several major riots and, and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not here to glorify all of that. Other than to say, in one sense, here I am being forced by my mom and dad to go to church on a Sunday. You know, put my suit and tie on my best shoes. But I myself was basically uh, a skinhead. Nothing, nothing's kind of much changed in 50 years. But, but I literally was, and, and in many ways, and, and was happier in a pair of jeans and DM boots and running about with my friends, getting into all kinds of mischief. And, and yet here's the thing. Isaiah, the word of God does not return void. And while I was running from the gospel, running from the claims of Christ, Enjoying my sin and boy, enjoying being part of the pack. It was hard to avoid that in a blue collar working class area. Uh, yet the gospel was there. I wasn't a rebel without a cause. I was suppressing the truth, as Romans 1 says. I knew there was a God. I believed that someday I, a reckoning would come, but I was kind of rolling the dice on, hey, 
I'll deal with this later. I'm going to sow my wild oats. I got to get out of this home, spread my wings a little bit, and I'll get back to this someday. But in God's goodness, I wasn't allowed to fulfill that foolish plan. Uh, I remember being in the middle of a full-scale riot, bottles, bricks, police, riot gear, armored vehicles, in the middle of it all going, what am I doing here? I remember fearing getting arrested. Not because I was frightened to get arrested. It was being hauled to the front door of my mom and dad by a police officer and breaking their heart. Much of what I did, I kind of did under the radar screen. I, I don't think they were stupid, knowing the area we lived in. My mom would say when she's asked, you know, what did you do in Philip's life? She would always tell the young women at our church, I prayed and I prayed hard. Because at the end of the day, you know, you, you can't be where your children are all the time. You can only give them up to the providence of God. You can only pray for God's grace to keep them from foolishness and, and maybe the full pursuit of sin. And, and that was going on in my life. I remember in that, in the sand, that going, what am I here? This isn't why God created me. This isn't the purpose for which I ought to live. And, and yet my love of sin often overcame that. And I often put that convicting voice to the back of my mind until God in his grace saved me on the 20th of January, 1978. Uh, when I heard a message from the youth leader at our church in Belfast, Matthew twenty four forty four, and such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. And here's how the Spirit of God used that message, because remember, here's my thinking. Someday, I got to think this thing through, and probably someday I got to repent, make it right with God. But you know what? If I can stay alive, <laughs> you know, enjoy a little bit of sin, then I'll eventually get there. We'll, 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 you know, we'll do the get out of jail card in the monopoly board, salvation. I'll just put that in my pocket someday. But the, the thought that really grasped me, and I'd challenge any man here who's not saved, and, and, and you, you know the Word of God's resonating in your heart, the Spirit of God speaking into your life, and yet there's this battle going on between, you know, light and darkness and life and death. That thought that gripped me that night was, hey, I may not get to Jesus before Jesus gets back. And if he gets back before I get to him, I'm done. I'm lost. I'm in hell forever. I'm damned. And that was the thing that brought me to Christ. I can't play that game. I can't roll that dice. My soul is too precious and eternity is too long to gamble that. And so I came to Christ at 16. Fast forward. Um, Left school at 16. uh, Went into aerospace company called Shorts in Belfast. We built aircraft, several. Uh, we worked alongside Boeing and, and uh, several aerospace companies and uh, did a four-year apprenticeship and spent some nine years in aerospace. During that time, I joined the police part-time. How ironic is that? Is that, is that not transformation? One day, I'm throwing, one day I'm throwing bricks at them. The next day bricks are getting thrown at me because I've changed sides. I've gone, I've gone from being a bad boy, a rebel, a lawbreaker to being a man who believes, hey, in law and order and, 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 and the governance of the law. And so I joined the police part time, as I've said, did that for six years, thought about going full time in that. Uh, but, but through, Getting involved in open-air preaching, evangelism, the local church, God began to stir up in my life a passion to teach his word. Um, I loved engineering. I loved the police particularly. I thought about going full-time in the police, but not to bore you with the story. We don't have time. God closed that door in a way that was clearly him. I was trying to push through a door that he was closing. 
because he wanted me to do something else. And uh, after uh, many years of growing in grace, taking the advice of pastors, listening to my mom and dad, I went to the Irish Baptist College to train for the ministry. During that time, my wife comes over from Scotland. She goes to a Presbyterian school in Northern Ireland, and um, life brings us together. We fall in love. We get married in Scotland. Uh, kilt and all, and uh, she's a great helpmate, uh, great wife, great mother, uh, great friend of the ladies of our church. And we thought that would be life. The UK, either we'd stay in Northern Ireland where we were pastoring, or ultimately maybe go to Scotland or England, somewhere within the UK. But in 1993, John MacArthur comes at my invitation to Northern Ireland and does a conference for me. And out of that, a friendship grows. And in 1994... Uh, he invites me to come and stay with him uh, during the Shepherds Conference. I spent two weeks with him in his home and, uh, you know, treasure the memory of that, the kindness of Dr. MacArthur with all his busyness. And I got, in, got ex- you know, exposed to the TMS, the, the Master Seminary. Now, think about this. I'd done four years of training. I'd been in the ministry for six. But there was something about the Master Seminary that gripped me, just a commitment to expository preaching, a clarity of theology. It was on the campus of a church, so it always reminded you that seminaries about the local church. I could go on. And you know what? Something gripped me I didn't expect. I thought about, you know what? I'm, if I could come to this school and get retrained, um, I think I'd get a better education than I got. And since preaching God's Word accurately and faithfully is what life's about, maybe stepping out of the game for a little while retooled is the way to go. Went home and told my wife after my visit in 94 to the Shepherds Conference, uh, she thought I'd got sunstroke. She said, I'm not going to America. Uh, we're staying in the UK. And I said, you rebel woman, submit. And, 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 you know, but, but she, you know, but yeah, yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. I think I thought it, but I didn't say it. Uh, and and, and here, here's a story, and we'll wrap this up. Got to get to God's Word. But just this might, encur- this might encourage someone. You know, she's, she was great, but, you know, from a, from a nesting point of view, she's, hey, I'm not lifting our three girls with three girls, five and one. I'm not going to a place I've never been to before, changing our lives. We're in the ministry. We've got friends. Your ministry is growing. And around that time, five years at a little church in Northern Ireland, even though, even though it was small, they blessed us financially and gave us a financial gift. I'd used part of it to go to the Shepherds Conference where I met Lance and Phil Johnson and Jerry Rag and that whole crew uh, that were my early friends, uh, Tom Pennington. And I came home, and we used the rest of it to go to Mallorca, which is an island off Spain for a little bit of R&R. Jen had been running crazy with three kids around her feet. And I said, hey, We'll use the rest of the money to go somewhere. Where do you want to go? She said, I want to go to a beach and just lie there for seven days. So we went to New York. And, and remember, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hey, June, you know, MacArthur's invited me to come to TMS. What do you think? She said, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I'm struggling with that. That's the serious side of it. So we're there. I'm reading The All Rhine Ministry by C.H. Spurgeon. And in that book, it's a great book. He's got a chapter called Go Forward. And it's about going forward, Exodus 14. And I kind of just started to resonate. I said, John, we've got to go to America. We've got to go forward. This is God. It's in this. John MacArthur wants to help us. We've got friends lined up to help us financially from his church, so on and so forth. We need to pray about this seriously. And, and um, she's lying on the, you know, the, the, the beach suntan. I'm slapping the you know, sunscreen on her. And all of a sudden, I turn to her and I say, 
I want to become a silver trumpet. And she's like, what are you talking about? You want to become a silver trumpet? I said, yes, Spurgeon just said when he was at his Bible college in London that, that, that when guys were were uh, street preachers, he would often say to him, hey, give me, give me two or three years and I'll train you to become a silver trumpet. And many of the guys would say, we don't have time for that. Hell's filling. Jesus is coming. We don't have time to spend three years in study. God's just going to use us the way he's going to use us without an education. And Spurgeon said in his book, yes, God can blow through any ram's horn. Which means he can use any one of us anyway. Seminary, no seminary. You can preach on the street. You can share the gospel. But he says this, God can blow through any ram's horn. But if you can become a silver trumpet, choose that rather. Hence my slapping the sunscreen. I'm going, I want to become a silver trumpet. She goes, what are you talking about? And I said, the master's seminary will help me become a silver trumpet. Hopefully help me just handle the word of God more accurately, more fully. That's why I'm here. Uh, we came in 94 not expecting to stay, but God in his grace and goodness has opened up wonderful platforms for ministry, wonderful friendships. Um, we, we have come to love this country. We're now citizens of it. Our three girls are up and growing, one married, two single. Uh, we love the church we're in there 11 years. God's given us a ministry on the radio. We're now on 600 stations all across the country. Uh, I, I hope I'm a silver trumpet. Uh, I just want to be used. I think the challenge on that, guys, as we wrap up, you know, just become the best you can for Christ. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know where God wants to take you, what God wants to do through you, but become the best you can. I mean, God gave his best for you. God spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all. If God hasn't spared heaven's best, don't be giving him the crumbs off your table. I mean, it may not be as radical as our story. You may not have to get up with three kids and move across the world and do something that has all kinds of risk attached to it. But, but don't be frightened to do something a little bit radical. Take a step of faith. Do something that costs you so that you can be a silver trumpet. You can be a, 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 a vessel fit for the, the master's use. And, you know, my time in the police, as I've kind of also hinted out in the book, that was just very helpful to me. I think that's given me a ministry to police officers in our church. We have several Navy SEALs that look to me with, with, with some respect because I think they know I've lived part of what they're living I love that kind of inroads into their life because I had to learn that, you know, security is not the absence of danger. Um, I checked my car every morning for undercar booby traps. That was the IRA's favorite weapon. Pound of Semtex explosives in a cassette case, Mercury tilt switch with a, with a magnet under your, under your seat. Uh, carried my weapon even when I was a lay Baptist preacher. Uh, I remember preaching once in a Baptist church in Belfast. It was so bad an area that I literally had to call in three, two armored cars to block each end of the road between the, the, the in and out of that street. I preached for an hour in the Baptist church. Can I give the guys a thumbs up? And about 20, 20 policemen and armored cars disappeared. That was kind of my life for a while, but it was good. I fleshed it out. I think it, it enriched me to be a better pastor and kind of identify with people in their struggles. So, you know, um, if you're not saved here today, 
Don't gamble your soul. Jesus is coming. Hell is real. Heaven is beautiful. And you know what? You don't need to go to hell. Jesus died for your sin. If you put your faith where God put your sin, you can be saved. I don't care what your sin has been. I don't care what your life has been. It, can, it, may, it may never be expunged on the books in, in L.A. County, but it will be expunged on the books in heaven itself. And uh, God can use you uh, in ways that you can't imagine. Well, let's take our Bibles for a few minutes and turn to James chapter 1. James 1 verses 13 to 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts or desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of his truth and we that we might be the first fruits of his uh, creatures. I like the story of the, the little fellow who was perched on top of a wall overlooking a farmer's orchard. And as the boy sat there, the farmer happened to come by and he said to the little fellow, Hey, what are you doing? Are you trying to steal my apples? To which the little fellow replied, No, sir, I'm trying not to steal your apples. <laughs> trying not to give in to temptation. Is that not everybody's challenge? According to the Bible, human experience bears witness to this. Temptation is a common thing. Doesn't Paul admit that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? There is no temptation that has overtaken you, but it is common to man. To be alive, to stand erect this morning, is to be tempted. No one dodges the bullet of temptation. Even the sinless, spotless Son of God was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. Listen, enticements to think, feel, act, or speak contrary to God's revealed will are strewn all across the road of life. I like what uh, the author John White says in his book, The Fight. You will be tempted. The kinds of temptation may change. Candies for kids, sensuality for the young, riches for the middle-aged, and power for the aging. You will be tempted continuously. You will be tempted ferociously. As long as you live, you will be tempted. James knows that. As long as you live, you will be tempted. Living in a fallen world means that you're always in danger of falling. And I just want to say this. The temptation doesn't vanish when you become a Christian. In fact, I would suggest it intensifies. Because you've swapped sides, the focus of the enemy becomes much more vicious and ferocious. Another thing, temptation isn't killed by a single act of dedication either. There isn't a weekend. There isn't a seminar you'd go to. There isn't a conference you'll come home from that will put death to temptation in your life. In fact, it won't be reduced by your spiritual growth either. 
As long as you live, you will be tempted. Some of God's choicest saints not only experience temptation, but sadly succumb to its charm and its force. Noah got drunk. David committed adultery. Abraham lied. Lot succumbed to worldliness. Zacchaeus was marked by unbelief. And Peter denied the Lord three times. So we want to come and look at James 1, 13 to 18, as he deals with temptation. A message I've called, When Temptation Strikes. Now let me put this text in its context. From verses 2 to 12, James has been talking about trials on the outside. Now he moves to temptations on the inside. He's been talking about the circumstances of life that God allows as a test to prove our faith. And those temptations surround, or those trials surround us and life presses in sickness, job loss, economic reversal, betrayal, you know, the list goes on. But now he's talking about temptations on the inside, being drawn away by your own desires after sin. And if you succumb to that, It produces death. Tests well handled produce life. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That would be better translated trial because it's the same Greek word. But when he has been approved, for he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So tests are sent by God, approved by God to approve us, resulting in life. Trials on the outside. But then there are Temptations on the inside, often triggered by Satan, not to approve us, but disprove us, not to bring life, but to bring death. And that's what James is addressing here. And I think there's a natural transition. Don't miss this. There's a natural transition from trials to temptations. Why would I say that? Don't miss this thought. If we feel to understand the purpose of God in a trial or in a test, which remember, although hard in itself, although it might bring sorrow and struggle, although hard in itself, what is the intent? The intent is to grow our faith. The intent is to approve us. The intent is to make us more complete. If we fail to understand the purpose of God in a test or in trial, we can wind up doubting God's goodness and questioning God's ways, which will be the temptation. If a trial is not handled correctly, temptation results. You begin to question God's goodness. You begin to question God's ways. I I like what um, Johnny Erickson Tata says. She says in her book, Secret Strength, you know her story, quadriplegic, paralyzed after a diving accident in Chesapeake Bay. But this is an interesting insight. It kind of makes my point and we'll move on. I was in my late 20s, single, and with every prospect of remaining so. Sometimes lust or a bit of fantasizing would seem so inviting, so easy to justify. After all, hadn't I already given up more than most Christians just by being disabled? Didn't my wheelchair entitle me to a little slack now and then? When God allows you to suffer, do you have the tendency to use your very trials as an excuse for sinning? Or do you feel that since you've given God a little extra lately, He owes you a day off? It's a good insight. That's why James moves naturally from trials to temptations. 
Because if you're suffering under a trial, you might make that very argument. You might rationalize the compromise you're about to embrace. God owes me. Given what I've had to deal with, I can take a day off spiritually. I can sin a little. So let's move into the text itself. Three things quickly. The author, the anatomy, and the answer to temptation. Let's look at the author. The author, verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Let's stop there. James has a sharp rebuke for anyone who has failed to endure their trials, who are about to give up on righteousness and give in to sin, who are doubting God's goodness, who are flaunting God's ways, who are not submitting or enduring the trial, neither about to be tempted and give in to the temptation. And you know what? James has a striking rebuke. He would remind them that indeed such a reaction and such rationale uh, in that if you're thinking, hey, God's at fault here. God isn't good here. I'm not sure God loves me given what I'm going through. James would remind you that God tempts no man. God can't be blamed by your temptation. God never entices a man to sin or do evil. God may test you to approve you, but God will never tempt you to disapprove you. The test may produce or lead to a temptation, but God is not the author of the temptation. The text is clear. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. God's not good. God's not loving. This can't be his plan. And you start to lay the blame on the doorstep of temptation with God. And Jim says, cut it out. I'm not letting you away with that. You want to know the author of temptation? Let's rule out one suspect, the Lord God, thrice holy, almighty. You can rule him out because God tempts no man nor can God himself be tempted. In fact, two things there. God's purpose and God's person rule that possibility out. We've kind of touched on that. God is utterly holy, right? Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a Hebraic way of just speaking about God's utter holiness. Evil can't make an appeal to God. Evil sin is inherently foreign to God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 30, that when the evil one comes to me, what does it say? He will find nothing in me. That can't be said of you and me. We've got unredeemed flesh. We've got a fallen nature. But that's not true of Jesus Christ in human flesh, and it wasn't true of God. There's no itch in God's character that sin can scratch. He's a purer eyes than to behold iniquity. God cannot be tempted. And if God cannot be tempted, God would never entice a man to sin against his will. Sin dethrones God. Why would God be party to anything that would dethrone him? Why would God tempt you? That's an impossibility. It goes against his nature. And it goes against his ways or his purpose. 
Because in verses 2 to 4, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Why does God permit us to be tested? Why did the Spirit of God lead Jesus into the wilderness? The purpose is a good one. The advancement of His kingdom, our spiritual growth, the proving of our faith. Why why would God tempt any man? That would be to shoot his purposes in the foot. That would be to put his desire and design for us into reverse gear. So I'll leave it at that. You, you, You get the point. God tempts no man. That would be against his purposes. For God himself cannot be tempted. Look at his person. Now here's the issue. Our surrendering to temptation then cannot be laid at God's feet. You've got to get that down today. Because we're going to go somewhere with this briefly. We're going to address the blame game. God is not the author of temptation, for God tempts no one. Here's the real answer, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away. Notice the words, by his own desires and enticed. When it comes to temptation, we have no one to blame but ourselves. God will not entice us to sin. And listen to this. The devil cannot cause us to sin. He can tempt us to sin. But he cannot cause us to sin. We have to buy what he's selling. And that's James's point. The fault for man's sin lies with man. It was through one man's disobedience that sin entered the world. And death thereby, right? Romans 5.12. Temptation is an inside job. Psalm 51 verse 5. We were born in sin and shaping in iniquity. That's not a reference to out of wedlock births. That's a reference to the fact we inherited Adam's nature. We were born with a heart that goes astray. Psalm 58 verse 3. We go astray from our mother's womb. We're like one of those carts at Walmart, you know, where one of the wheels is stuck. And every time you try to push it straight, it's, you just go into the tin of tomato sauce, soup or whatever it is in the aisle. It's, that's us. We're born going this direction. Our heart is fixed in that direction. And James wants you to know that. God's not the author of your sin. Satan may tempt you, but understand this. It is you alone that will cause it and give in to it. That's, by the way, why it's interesting. Wouldn't you think that, talking about temptation here, that James would mention the devil? There's no mention of the devil in our verses or the world. It's not that James ignores that. In fact, later on in chapter 4, verse 4, while he talked about, about the demon of adultery with the world. And the world is that mindset opposed to God. Anything the world, when, when the Bible talks about worldliness, that mindset will, that will tempt you and urge you to do that which displeases God and is outside as well. And James says, adultery with the world is bad. And he'll talk about, hey, submit to God and resist the devil. But why does he leave the world and the devil out here? Because he doesn't want you to make the mistake of looking beyond yourself when it comes to the authorship of temptation. We have met the enemy and he is us. That's the fact. 
That's, it's Mark 7, 18 to 23. Remember when Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees who say, you know what, you become impure by what you eat or touch. It's an outside-inside thing. And Jesus said, that's crazy. What you eat goes into your stomach. It doesn't corrupt you. It's, it's what comes out of your heart that corrupts you. It sins an inside-out job. And that's the point James is making. Guys, who's the author of temptation? Number one, it's not God. He tempts no man, nor can he himself be tempted. And, and certainly, I'm not ignoring the world and the devil. I'll talk about that a little later on in the letter. But I just want to focus on you. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires. So here's the point. James does not want anybody excusing or absolving themselves by laying the blame on circumstances, others, the devil, and certainly not God. Now that's not to say that circumstances or others or the devil are not a catalyst to sin. But while they supply the spark, you supply the fuel. We make the choices that lead to sin. David admitted it when it came to his adultery, didn't he, in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned? Could he have blamed Bathsheba's nakedness and the temptation she set before him? He could have, but he didn't. Because while she triggered a temptation, David gave in to it. It was an outside-in, an inside-out thing. What about the prodigal? Who, who Jesus talks about. Did, did he talk about the far country and vanity and all the temptations that lay strewn around him? Now he came back and said, Father, forgive me. I've sinned against you. Make me your servant. What about the thief on the cross? Could he have blamed the Roman, um, the Roman oppression and the Roman government for his... You know, antisocial behavior, maybe he could have, but he didn't. He, he sought Christ's forgiveness. Jim, James wants to deal with this issue of victimhood. That, that you know what? You, you can't blame it on your parents or your teachers or the police or the culture or the government. Not saying there may not be factors play into your story, but ultimately it's an inside-out job. You went after sin with your own desires. The devil can tempt you, but he can't cause you to sin. That's something you do. It's you that hand him the key to the door of your life. You know, I like the story of the little fellow who, you know, slapped his sister's face, pulled her hair, and kicked her in the shins. And, and the, the mother kind of heard about it, saw part of it, and she grabbed him and said, I can't believe you did that to your sister. You know, the devil must have made you do that. That was terrible. To which the wee fella said, you know what, mom? The devil made me pull her hair, and the devil made me slap her face. But kicking her shins was my idea. <laughs> and I want to tell you this. I want to tell you this. When it comes to sin... You'll be surprised how much of it is our idea. 
James wants you to know that. That's the author. Secondly, what I call the anatomy of, of temptation. The anatomy of temptation. We'll move through this quickly and get to the solution. But I just want for a few minutes to kind of break down the movements and the moments leading up to temptation. Sports fans, we, we love those slow-mos, don't we? You know, some touchdown, something that's just slowed down frame by frame. You see the athleticism, you see the brilliance, all of that. We love it. And, and James is doing that. He's given us a slow-mo on sin. You know, sin can happen so fast. And, and it can seem so irrational and so momentary. But James would want you to know there's stages to it. There's movements whether you recognize them or not. He's going to help you recognize them. He's going to do a post-mortem on sin after you and I have given into temptation. Let me run through these quickly. Number one, desire. Number one, desire. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away, notice, by his own desires. The old Keynesians would have lusts. It's the same thought. It's a, it's a desire. It's a passion. It's a, it's a burning intent or want. That's what a temptation is. It, it, it's a desire for something that God doesn't desire for us. Basically, that's probably one of the easiest ways to define a temptation. It is a desire for something that God doesn't desire for us. But it is a desire. It's a want that wants to be fulfilled outside the will of God. Now here's what I'd say just simply. Often it's a illegitimate desire. right? Just straight out the gate, it's to be ruled out. It's just patently bad. Patently wrong. It's a violation of God's commandments. It's a, travest, a travesting of, of His clear will. Stealing. Thou shalt not steal. So, so it's often an illegitimate desire from the get-go that we pursue, and if we give in to it, we know we're outside the will of God and we've sinned. But I want to say this. It's often a legitimate desire at the beginning that is going to be fulfilled illegitimately. There's nothing wrong with money, but there is the danger of the love of money. Nothing wrong with sex, but it is wrong before marriage, outside of marriage, beyond marriage. Nothing wrong with a sense of security. And yet we can seek protections outside the will of God. Or our love of security can become an element of distrust towards God. You get my point. Think it out for yourself. So on the one hand, desire. It can be just illegitimate desire from the get-go. Or, because temptation's got to be appealing, think about that. If a temptation has an appeal, it often appeals to something that's good. Or it wouldn't be a temptation. I'm not tempted to eat broccoli. Alright? That's just not appealing to me. Cheeseburger with bacon? Now we're talking. So, so you get the point. It, it's more, often it's more a legitimate desire, something that appeals, and it can be good in and of itself. But it's not for us. It's not the right time. It's not the right person. It's not the right way if we seek to fulfill it in certain manners. That's, by the way, a reminder. Temptation is not necessarily a sin. Your, your, your desires will be baited. 
your desires will be appealed to. Now, at that point, it's not necessarily sin. You haven't yet sinned, and death isn't resulting. It's just good to remember that, because remember, Christ was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. That seems to infer you can be tempted without sinning. It's just good to know that. Temptation's not a sin. It's not an indication of failure. The fact that you're tempted in an area doesn't mean you need to conclude, I'm a bad Christian. I mustn't be spiritual. There's something wrong with me. Wasn't Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said, you cannot stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. Number two, deception. Deception. It's kind of piggybacking off this thought. Look at the phrase drawn away. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. This is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It pictures a wild animal being lured from a place of safety into a place where it's trapped or killed. Uh, the word enticed or drawn away can speak of a, a fish. If you're an angler, this is your word. Catching sight of a glint in the water, taking the bait and being hooked and cooked. That's our word. So the, the, the desire is the bait on the line. The enticement is, you know, the bait that's covering the hook. It, it's kind of presenting an appealing situation, but the danger and the damage and the cost is hidden. And you and I need to kind of just bear that in mind. We tend to think of temptation in flaming red colors. You know, just flat out pornography. Somebody dropped a $100 bill out of their pocket. You're six feet behind them. There it is. You can take it and forget it. Don't need to tell them. You know, that's how we think of temptation. Some blatantly sitting there, flaming red color. You can know it. But I want to tell you guys, often, as we've said, sin is more seductive than that. Satan is a better fisher of men than that. When he tempts you and I, he appeals to those things in us that are often God-given desires, God-given passions, things that are good in and of themselves in the proper time with the proper person in the will of God. You need to adjust your con- conception of temptation. You know what? Every Christmas in our church in Northern Ireland, the, the church would give us a, a, a box of our favorite chocolates. If you're ever in London or you're in a British railway station or airport, you'll often see a confectioner called Thorntons. And we, we loved Thorntons, and, and we loved a particular box of their chocolates that our church would give us every Christmas. And the, temp, the box of chocolates was called Temptations. It's true, Bill. Beautifully packaged. Didn't come in a brown bag. Beautifully packaged, wrapped up. And they were. They, they, they tempted me to get fat very quickly. They tempted me to fight my wife over a particular soft center flavor that I liked. It was all kinds of temptations came with the temptations. But the point is this. That's, that's temptation in itself. It's enticing. It's appealing. Devil is a master fisherman. Disobedience. Desire, deception, disobedience. As we follow the evil desire, as we take the bait, we consent to disobey. And it produces a sinful act. 
Then, verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives forth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. This is the image of the prostitute back in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Come lie with me. My husband's away. You've got desire. I've got time. We have the opportunity. Let's make love. And conception takes place. And sin is born. In that sexual union. That's the picture. He, he uses different dramatic pictures. The, the picture of the fisherman drawing out the fish with the bait and the hook. The, the prostitute who's well dressed and beautiful to look at. And, and, and that union brings forth sin. It conceives and brings forth sin. Which brings death. Desire, deception, disobedience, death. The child is sin, and when the sin matures and grows up, it gives birth to another child, which is death. It's powerful. Uh, One of the commentators says this, Desire is the parent, sin is the child, death is the grandchild. Powerful. That's why you've got to follow a thing, says C.S. Lewis, to its bloody conclusion. Kind of a blunt statement, isn't it? But you've got to see where temptation given into leads to sin and sin produces death. Follow the thing to its bloody conclusion. Sin looks good in prospect. It always looks awful in retrospect. Write down Proverbs 23, 32 and the sparkle of alcohol. Yet the end of it is tragedy. Destruction. Talk about the sweetness of fornication, Proverbs 5, verse 4. Talk about the harlot, the seductress woman. Her feet lead to death. What about the security of riches, Jeremiah 17, 11. Sin always promises so much and delivers so little. Follow the thing to its bloody conclusion. Paul Powell says, The sin of the future seems fair as an angel from heaven, but the sin of yesterday is as ugly as a fiend from hell. Let's get to the answer to temptation and wrap this up. This kind of takes us to verses 16 through 18. I'm going to jump, hop, skip, and jump across these for the few minutes we've got left. James offers an answer. Uh, Temptation will come, but it need not defeat us. It is common to all men, But God is what? Faithful. And and He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And with the temptation, what? He'll make a way of escape. Here's the first thing. It requires fight. In fact, on this, I'm going back to verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures temptation or trial. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Remember we have said if we don't handle our tests or trials right, we end up in temptation. But the man that endures his test will be able also to endure his temptation. He's a man who's fighting spiritual pluck, moral fortitude. He's learned how to handle his test. And he's learned how to handle temptation. He knows there's a continuous assault on the part of the world and the flesh and the devil. 
And so the blessed man is the one who endures, who stands in the evil day, who puts on the whole armor of God. In fact, in James 4 verse 7, what do we read? Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's military language. Dig in. Dig in. Fight him. Resist him. Because the Christian life is a war zone. Your flesh wars against the spirit. The Puritans talk about our flesh being like the traitor within the castle. We're like, our lives and our hearts are like a besieged castle. And the enemy and the world lays siege. And we're fighting it, but we've got to watch out for the fifth column. We've got to watch out for the traitor. That's our own sinful hearts. And when that sinful heart is not submitted to the authority of God's Word, and not under the control of the Spirit of God, and not accountable to the body of Christ, it opens the gate for the enemy to come in. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to stand against the evil one in the evil day. You know what? When I was in the RUC, I, I worked out of a station in North Belfast. And as we did our radio check and our weapons check before we went out on a foot patrol, we used to go down to the weapons bay, check our weapons. And I always remember the last two words, the last words we would see going out of the station in North Belfast were these words in the weapon bay. They were right there on the wall. Stay alert. Stay alive. Is that not true for every man here? Are we not soldiers of Christ that must endure hardship? We're in the fight of our life. We're in enemy territory. This world isn't a playground. It's a battleground. Stay alert. Stay alive. Number two, it requires not only fight, but insight. Not only fight, but insight. Verse 16 is a kind of bridge verse. Do not be deceived. And I think for the most part it's leaning forward. Don't be deceived, my brethren. God is good. Every good gift comes from above. That's the genesis of temptation. What was Eve tempted to think? God's not good. He's holding out. And James is going to fight that. We'll come to it in a moment. You've got to fight temptation with the thought of God's goodness. When sin looks good, remember Jesus is better. Don't be deceived. Look at the hook behind the bait. Look at the child that comes from the conception. Don't be deceived. God is good. Sin brings death. But I think it leans back a little. So it not only requires fight, it requires insight. What do I mean by that? If it leans forward and says, hey, think about God's nature, where God is holy and God is good, It does lean back a little because in contrast to God's nature, our nature is temptable. We are the source of sin in our life. So the point is this, know your weakness. Don't be deceived. Think about the nature of God, but don't be deceived about your own nature. You can't play the blame game. God didn't tempt you. Satan might tempt you, but he can't cause you to sin. You're drawn away of your own desires. So here's the point, guys. Know yourself. There's a masterful work by John Owen, a little hard to read. There's a modern version of it, Get It Sometime, where, where Owen speaks about sin and temptation. And one of his arguments in his book is this. 
don't be a stranger to yourself. See, not only says know God and his nature, know yourself and your nature. Don't trust yourself. Don't buy into this idea you're good, you're rotten to the core. You've got a dicky heart, spiritually and morally speaking. That, that heart will betray you seven days a week, apart from the work of grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. So you better know yourself. You better know what's your poison. Because one man's poison is another man's food. And one man's food is another man's poison. I don't know what, what area you'll be tempted in, but you need to know what that is. And you need to know the, the kind of things that trigger it. And you need to know the cycles in your life or your week that make you weak late at night. I don't know what it is. The office environment. Know yourself. The, the first thing a police officer in Belfast does or a soldier in Baghdad does or in Iraq does, you get situationally aware. You know the district you're in. You know the, temp, the, the, the fight that you're up against. You know the tactics of the enemy. You know your own weaknesses. Know yourself. Finally, not only requires fight, endure, not only requires insight, not only know the nature of God, but your own nature in comparison to Him, you are temptable and sin rises from within. The last thought is it requires delight, and we're done here, guys. Thanks for hanging in. Maybe spent too much time on the testimony, but... It requires delight. This is the argument of verse 17. This is us leaning forward. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Comes down from the Father of lights. God will not tempt you. He will allow tests to grow you. Suck it up. Submit. Let that make you more complete. Be a man of God. And also know that he's good. The tests he sends are good because all things work together for good. But also, any good in your life, any good you enjoy from life, whether it's the love of uh, your wife or the admiration of your children or your ability at work or a good dinner or sitting, uh, you know, uh, at the beach when it's sunset, whatever that is, it's all come from above. Don't you ever, don't you ever say God isn't good. Just look at the cross for goodness sake. That's the point here. And the point is this. As Sam Storms in his excellent book, Pleasures Forevermore, argues, the best way to fight temptation is not prohibition. That's part of it. Thou shalt not. But the best way to fight temptation is is the goodness of God. What he means by this is, Sin is a pleasure attached to it, <laughs> or it wouldn't be appealing. All right? Sin, temptation is appealing, and it's set before us a deceptive appeal. It's good to the eye. That's what Eve saw. And Storm says, hey, if you're going to beat that, the pleasures of sin for a season, you've got to offer a greater pleasure. So prohibition's part of it. Saying no is part of it. The thou shalt not is part of it. Raising a wall is part of it. But he says, man, if you're going to fight the temptations of the world, you've got to buy in to this belief that Jesus is sweeter, Jesus is better, Jesus is more beautiful, heaven is glorious, eternity is long. You've got to keep that all in mind. Listen to what he says and we'll be done. 
How do you fight the pleasure of sin? I'll tell you with another pleasure. Holiness is not attained, at least not at any lasting capacity, merely through prohibition, threats, fear, shame-based appeals. Holiness is attained by believing in, trusting, banking on, resting in, savoring and cherishing God's promise of a superior happiness that comes only through falling in love with Jesus. Amen? I love that old hymn. We don't sing it anymore, but the churches I grew up in and used to sing it, none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me, there's life and love and lasting joy. Lord Jesus, find in thee. Parents, one, one set of parents was dealing with their boy. He was one of, just one of these kind of computer nerds. He wasted so much time in front of the screen playing computer games. They tried everything. They tried to barter. They tried to threat. They tried punishments. He, he wouldn't budge. And then all of a sudden, he kind of didn't play as much, and all of a sudden gave the whole thing up. They, they just couldn't get their heads around this. What had brought this about? Well, what they found out was a girl had brought this about. The kid had fallen in love with a girl, and her beauty and being with her was a greater attraction than, than the emptiness of a computer screen. And, and, and you know what? That's kind of the analogy James has got going here. When the Spirit of God opens your eyes to the goodness of God and the love of God in Jesus Christ and the beauty of the Savior and the lasting joys that he brings, joy unspeakable, peace inexpressible, you can fight that temptation and the pleasure of sin with a greater pleasure. Guys, fight. Guys, understand yourself. Be situationally aware. Understand the world is no playground. It's a battleground. And guys, remember, none but Christ can satisfy. No other name for me. There's life and love and lasting joy. Lord Jesus, find in thee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we might hide it in our hearts so we may not sin against you. We thank you for this passage helps us to deal when temptation strikes. We thank you that we have the Spirit within. We thank you that we have joy everlasting before us. We thank you we have lived long enough and sinned enough to know that sin is always better in prospect than it is in retrospect. It never delivers. Forgive us for going back to those old watering holes that are broken cisterns. Help us today to fall more fully in love with Jesus Christ. May we find our joy in him. May we find power to overcome sin in him. May we live a life that glorifies him. Thank you for this ministry. Thank you for this man. Bless this work on top of this hill for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, guys. Thank you.